1: And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Back before Donald Trump became president of the United States. Yes, I know, that's a mouthful. He had a day-to-day lie that he told everyone he bumped into. For example, he would tell some people he was worth $4 billion, other people he was worth $5 billion, some he was worth as much as $6 billion. This changed literally by the day. So when Tim O'Brien, a reporter, came out with a book called Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald in October 2005, it pointed out that Trump was actually worth about $150 million to $250 million. Needless to say, Donald Trump was not very happy, and he sued O'Brien, alleging that Trump had been a victim of malice. Trump lost the suit and went on to become president, and now O'Brien works for Bloomberg View, writing about Donald Trump. He joins me today to talk about what it's been like to cover him for over three decades and to tell some of the most bombastic moments he experienced spending time with Trump over the years, and he did spend a lot of time with him including one crazy story where Trump lied about a fake painting on his private jet, saying it was actually an original. O'Brien also offers a few predictions for how this is all going to end and, providing it's not a nuclear war with North Korea, how the Trump administration will be remembered several decades from now. All right, Tim, thank you so much for joining us.
1: I'm, I'm happy to be here, Nick.
0: Um, so uh, I know this is a conversation that you have had many, many, many times, but we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about a certain Donald Trump. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit? What, when did you meet Donald for the first time?
1: Um, that's interesting. You know, the first time I was sort of in physical proximity of of Donald was in uh, the late 80s at one of his birthday parties early 90s I guess at one of his birthday parties in Atlantic City when I was um, the research assistant on Wayne Barrett's biography of Trump which was the first big serious biography uh, it was Donald Trump the deal Trump the deals and the downfall and uh, it got re-released in paperback as uh, the greatest show on earth shortly before Wayne Barrett died in any event I was uh, I was at Trump's birthday party to Taj Mahal and he was walked right past me. Uh, I scooped up a glass of champagne and followed him into the party. Um, I interviewed him formally the, for the first time in the mid-90s when I was working on a book about gambling, uh, the history of gambling in the United States. And a chapter of that book was about Atlantic City. And I visited him at his office in Trump Tower for uh, for that book and talked with him at length for a few hours about um his role in Atlantic City, um, and then I didn't see him again until the early Knots, and uh, it was on the heels of The Apprentice becoming this cult and pop culture phenomenon on reality TV. And uh, when,
0: when when you first met ahead. him that first time back in the eighties, was did, was he as kind of bombastic and ridiculous as? he is today, but just with, a, with less attention, or was, it, was he a different kind of person? What was he like back then?
1: No, I, I think Donald Trump leapt from the womb bombastic, <laughs> fully formed like, like Athena springing from the forehead of Zeus. Um, I think uh, he has been this guy uh, easily probably for, I would say, you know, 60 Sixty-five or so of his seventy-one years, um, and it's just how he rolls. And I think one of the reasons he, you know, he's able to get away with this shtick are these twin foundations of being wealthy which I think has insulated him from the consequences of his own mistakes and, and bombast during his life. He always had money to fall back on, even when he almost went personally bankrupt. He had his father's wealth to rescue him. And then I think the cult of celebrity you know, in the United States has also given him a lot of leeway uh, for quite a long time. Because he's been a celebrity and probably is more a celebrity than a businessman for quite a long time.
0: So so you worked with Wayne um <clears throat> uh, uh on his book uh, the greatest show on earth um Wayne was Wayne passed away i believe was it was it earlier this year
1: uh he passed away the day before trump was inaugurated
0: and did you did you know what he did he did you speak to him before like i mean he had to have known trump won the presidency uh, I mean, oh yeah, some... yeah,
1: Wayne and I did a number of panels together. We did a, a kind of a recurring thing with Politico magazine where Politico convened trump's biographers to talk about the Trump phenomenon, and we first got together going back and uh let me think when that was. I think we did the first roundtable in January of two thousand
0: sixteen and, and and the people that have known this guy for. Since the 90s, you know, when I speak to them personally, there's there's almost kind of there's there's a, a, a duality of a of a oh, my God, I cannot believe this guy won. And of course, this guy won. Is that what's what's your feeling? Well,
1: I'm surprised he won. I, I, I did not think he'd win the general election. I, I thought he would win the primaries. And I said that on TV and radio and elsewhere. I thought, you know, I wasn't surprised that he won the primaries. I thought that uh, he would run up against the Clinton political machine in the general election, and I thought they were going to make it harder for him uh, to claim some of his stakes. And um, and I was wrong about that. I, he won very narrowly in the Upper Midwest, as we all know, and it, you know there's a hairbreadth separating him from uh, um, the White House. I I think, though, we have to recognize that, that, that both Trump and Bernie Sanders, I think, are flip sides of the same coin, which is yeah. Yeah. Um, average Americans saw their lives devastated by the 2008 financial crisis. And I think they felt that group of people who felt um, shell shock from all of that also felt that. Big institutions overlooked them, whether it was the media or, or both political parties or corporate america and I think that anger and frustration and disgust with the establishment came out in both of those candidacies. Um, so I think it 's not surprising that that Don, uh, someone like Donald Trump got traction i think it 's surprising to me that someone like donald Trump had that traction was able to capitalize on it
0: so you um, uh, you wrote the book Trump nation the art of being the Donald um, and you then got sued by Donald Trump um, and you uh, you got to see his tax returns um, and a number of things like that so you pretty much you know you know him probably better than most reporters out there um, <clears throat> the the thing that I constantly kind of struggle with and I think a lot of people do is is how much of all of this is just reality tv for him and and how much of it is him you know trying to gain more power and and money and so on and so forth or is it all kind of one big mess of all these things together
1: well Nick there might be like three parts to that question right like it, yeah. was he is he serious about public policy and did he see the presidency as a way to affect great public policy and be a great public servant uh, did he see the presidency as a money making opportunity and three which you already asked and then the third one is it just reality tv for him I would I I would feel with great certainty that it he saw uh, a run for the presidency as a marketing and money-making opportunity. I, I think he lives every day as if he's in a reality TV program. He thinks very cinematically about himself. He's a movie buff. He almost went into the film industry before he returned to his father's business. When, we, when he and I traveled around together, we screened movies regularly, and he was an aficionado of... Uh, you know, technique, and celebrity. So I, I think the twin things motivating his run for the presidency was money and and um, performance art. I don't think he cares at all about public policy or the nuts and bolts of public policy. He cares about whether or not he looks good around legislative endeavors. But as we've already seen through the battle to overturn Obamacare and now this sort of half-baked tax policy that he's put out – he doesn't learn the nuts and bolts of anything, yeah. uh, and, and and he hasn't bothered to to create bridges to Congress. He's not a president that, who has you, a serious sense you, about a sense of duty or responsibility around the office.
0: Do you think that you know when I look at Trump and the Trump administration, um, I look at what is a complete nutter clusterfuck? I mean, it just seems like one car crash after the other. Um, and but does he look at it and think? Well, everyone's still talking about me, so I'm a, it's it's successful.
1: Yes. <laughs> I think I think he is living in a nirvana right now where anything that he tweets says or does becomes the news driver of the day. This is what he's been waiting all of his life. Uh, to experience. And and it's why he's fascinated with celebrity. And he's not running the White House any differently than he ran his private business. Even then, you know, he wasn't good at building strong teams. He wasn't good at recruiting and empowering strong-minded, talented people. He, He has always recruited yes people to his organization. Anybody who didn't toe the line with Trump in the Trump organization was shown the door. It's a very small business. It's not a Fortune 500 company. He is not the colossus of a major American corporation. The Trump organization is a mom and pop shop. That's essentially a branding vehicle for Donald Trump. And he came to the White House with all of that same crazy uh, hitched onto the back of his pants. And uh, as we've seen from the team that he's put in place in the White House, they fight with each other. Um, many of them are not competent. Some of them are. Uh, and and he's essentially the center of chaos because he thrives in, in at, the, at the center of chaos.
0: So do you think that, um, you know, there was this week, there was the story uh, that's now circulating all over the Internet still um, about uh, Corker, um, uh, the Republican who came out and, you know, essentially – Said what most Republicans are saying behind the scenes—that Trump is unhinged, that he's a lunatic, that it's like a daycare facility in the White House—that you know his tweets um, are undermining any attempt by Rex Tillerson or anybody to actually get some real foreign policy done to to stop a potential World War Three, you know, and so on and so forth. Is is this? You know, why do you think that the Republican Party has? put up with this for so long? And do you think that they'll just put up with it until these four years run out and we hopefully are not in some sort of cataclysmic apocalyptic war?
1: Well, I think the reason that the the GOP hasn't really defined itself in the Trump moment is because the GOP itself is broken, it, it has a far right wing that is essentially anti-government to the extreme. They would rather, I think, that the only sort of government service that exists is, is defense uh, and maybe some road building. And other than that, they want the government out of the way. And then there's traditional moderate conservatives who, who I think, believe in bipartisan legislation but haven't been able to uh, work towards that because you've got a highly politicized uh, Congress now, where where both parties are at war with each other, and and I think the only thing that's going to get the GOP off of its heels, remember Corker, Corker's you know about to retire from political life if if we take him at face value, so where he sits, there's not a lot he's got to lose from speaking his mind. However, he admirably did articulate things that everyone else has been saying in the GOP about Trump, which is that. He's overseeing romper room, and that he's the biggest bully on the playground. In that scenario, I think for the rest of the GOP to step up, they're going to have to believe that there's going to be some electoral cost to them of remaining silent. And I don't think they're going to do much around that until the midterms. And then I think in the midterms, you know, if there's next year, if there's if there's a if there's a a noticeable sway against Republicans because of Trump, then I think you'll see Republicans start to speak out more. But not until then.
0: There's been a lot of stories um, <clears throat> over the last few months, and I believe there was something else again in the New York Times this week. Um, and there's a book that is coming out now that portrays that says that that Donald Trump actually probably does suffer from some sort of mental disorder, whether it's you know narcissism or you know something along those lines. As someone who has known him for. 30 years almost now or more. Um, Do you think that's accurate?
1: Well, I I think he's a classic textbook case of someone with narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, You know, he's someone who cannot see the world working in any other way, except through his own lens and in the context of everything being about him. Uh, I think he's consumed with himself in an unhealthy way, Um, you know, diagnosing deeper psychological problems around him. That's not my bailiwick, but I don't think you have to be a specialist to see somebody who day in and day out is throwing these flame balls, these sort of sensationalistic flame balls against major stakeholders in U.S. society against most people's uh, understanding of mature civic discord, because he just likes blowing it up and lies pathologically about almost everything he speaks about, uh, isn't someone who's not necessarily uh, a rational thinker. And I, I think the more time Trump spends on the public stage, the more and more obvious that becomes.
0: So when you th- when he does these things that you know where he calls um Kim Jong Un little rocket man and so on and so forth is it, it in your viewpoint and again I know this you're not a psychologist but you've been covering him for a long time but in your viewpoint is he is does he think about the potential ramifications or something like that 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 you know he could piss off North Korea that you know and set off some sort of world war or something or some sort of nuclear attack? Or does he just think, oh, this is this is going to be fun. Everyone will be talking about me for the next 35 minutes.
1: Uh, I think it's probably the latter, Nick. And I think that here's what's dangerous about Donald Trump is he is wildly ignorant and he is so self-absorbed that the driving force around most of his actions is either self-aggrandizement or self-protection and preservation. And uh, most of the time it's self-aggrandizement, and he personalizes um, relationships with countries like North Korea and has no awareness of the diplomatic or military history lying behind all these interactions because he doesn't, he's almost ADD. He doesn't read. He, he's not a student of anything other than his own celebrity. And that's a dangerous, dangerous mix because you've got somebody who isn't bothering to get up to speed on the facts of the matter but who is willing to get into a complicated situation because it puts him at center stage. And he can't see any divisions between the two.
0: So everyone I've spoken to who has spent time with Donald Trump at one point or another has a has a classic Donald Trump story that kind of exemplifies who he is. Do you have one of those?
1: Oh, Nick, I've got, I've got <laughs> trunk loads. Let me think of... <laughs> Here's one that I like. Here's one that I like. He and I were on his jet once going. We were flying, I think, to Los Angeles. And we were sitting at a table in the back of the jet. And behind him on the wall was this knockoff, this Renoir knockoff. And it clearly was a knockoff in a heavy, gilded frame. And I asked him about the painting, and Donald said, that's an original Renoir. And I said, no, it's not, Donald. And he said, it, it, that's the original. That's an original Renoir. I said, Donald, it's not. I grew up in Chicago. That Renoir is called Two Sisters on a Terrace, and it's hanging on a wall at the Art Institute of Chicago. That's not an original. And Trump said, oh, no, 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 no. It's an original. So I dropped it. We moved on with the interview. We get on the plane the next day, and he points to the painting again, and he said, you know, that that's an original Renoir. And I didn't take him up on it, and... About, well, shortly after he got elected president, and he sold that jet, by the way. That jet, uh, he he traded up after I'd interviewed him, and I sort of wondered if the Renoir went into the bonfire. Um, And after he got elected, he and Mike Pence were interviewed on 60 Minutes, like, days i think after the election and they were seated in trump tower on these in these two little mini thrones the kind of furniture trump loves at trump tower and i'm looking at them being interviewed and sure enough in the background hanging on a wall is that fake renoir and i'm sure he's still telling people who come into the apartment it's an original it's an original and one of the reasons that story to me is so emblematic of him is he believes his own lies in, 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 in a way that lasts for decades, and he'll tell the same stories time and time again, regardless of whether or not facts are, are right in front of his face. And that is also something that makes him dangerous, because uh, he's a propagandist. And and this war that he's leading on the media, uh, um, you know, around the notion of fake news, quote-unquote, Its foundation is that he's the final arbiter of what is true and what isn't. And this is a guy who's saying he should be the arbiter when he's willing to sit there and lie about a painting that's incontrovertibly not an original. And he does that in so many aspects of his life, and it's... It's one of the reasons he's he's dangerous.
0: So, so when you that, first of all, that's an incredible story. Uh, um, second of all, when you look at the you know the the fake Trump Time Magazine covers that hang in in the golf course and so <laughs> on and so forth, for him, there's a point at which he truly believes that he was on the cover of Time Magazine
1: or 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 remember they put uh, a little um, plaque up on uh, his golf course in Virginia, saying that that part of the golf course was the site of a famous civil war battle, and that was a civil war battle that never took place much less on his golf course um, <sighs> But he is, he is so willing to lie to burnish his identity and his reputation and, and to do whatever it takes to contribute to his own myth-making about himself that you get all these crazy moments like the fake Time magazine covers or the fake Civil War battle battleground or, or the fake Renoir. Uh, there was, a, there, there was I think, right after he got elected, one of the architectural magazines, or it might have been town and country, did a little spread on Melania's office in Trump Tower. And there was a line pointing to, uh, I think, an original Impressionist painting. I can't remember the, the painter on her wall. And I will bet you dollars to donuts that's not an original either.
0: It's amazing. And he used to, isn't it true that he used to, um, he uh, skipped floors in some of his buildings, so they would seem higher than they actually were?
1: Well, in Trump Tower, for example, they skipped several floors. So we could say that the building, uh, you know, was, was several stories higher than it was. Uh, he famously um, took on... Um, uh, the personage of John Barron, a public relations uh, guru who was Trump himself, obviously, but he was using that name as a cover to take interviews with reporters in which he talked about what a lady killer and man about town and great businessman Donald Trump was. Um,
0: so he, so when he did those, you know, he he changed, he he faked his voice, so it didn't sound like him, right? And would call people. And well, have those actually, though, if you
1: listen to the recordings of those interviews in which he said he was John Barron, you can totally tell it's him. So, I don't know. Uh, Donald Trump probably cannot stop talking like Donald Trump, even if he wanted, even if it was in his best interest to do so.
0: And so, so I mean, look, I I've only been paying attention to him quite. From for, like most Americans, I think, for the last couple of years, um, do you, does does he keep you awake at night like he does me? Like I, you know, I legitimately worry about if if this country is going to survive all of the things that he is doing. You know, I think one of the things that's so fascinating and terrifying is that we don't necessarily often see the repercussions of an action of an administration for many, many years. You know, we're, for example, we're (laughs) only just, we're just seeing the results. I mean, the 2008 housing crisis was, you know, were results of of decisions made decades earlier um, uh, and so on and so forth. Do you, does this keep you up at night too?
1: Um, I am kept up at night by the threat of nuclear war uh, with North Korea i uh, I don't put it past the President to randomly launch an attack because it will improve his standing in the ratings or he feels like he's been personally slighted <clears throat> that that worries me uh, very much um, absent that and that's a big thing to say absent that about but I think domestically, I think, I think one of the things we've learned is that the United States has very strong institutions, particularly the courts. And um, I think there's a lot of his agenda that he thought he would just force feed to the American public. And I think the courts and the media uh, and average citizens um, and their legislators have, have stood up against that. And I think it's forced him to abandon, for the time being, for example, overturning Obamacare. It forced him to have to turn on his heels on uh, on some of the stuff he's tried to do on immigration, though not all of it. Um, so I say all that is my way of saying I'm 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 not worried that long term Donald Trump will destroy the United States from within, but I think. He could easily destroy us from without uh, through things like nuclear war or by just pursuing so many harebrained policies that our economic foundations don't give us the kind of strength in the world we've been used to having. And he certainly, I think, from a diplomatic standpoint, turned the United States into an embarrassment on the on the global landscape.
0: Oh, without without question. Um, shifting gears just a a little bit here, um, but still staying within Trump land. Um, this last week, uh, you know, um, we saw what happened to Harvey Weinstein for years of sexual abuse and, and, um, things that he did to women. Uh, the same thing happened to Roger Ailes last year. The same thing has happened to other people on Fox news, um, uh, and, um, Bill O'Reilly included. And it seems to me that, that, from all the reports that are out there um, that the, that Trump was, was one of those, one of those kinds of men. I've heard personal things from friends that, that, that had very strange and uncomfortable encounters with them from women. Do you think that, that a, if he was not the president, that he would be one of the people that could be exposed, would have been exposed in these, these reports that are finally coming out and B, is it a possibility that one day that, those things that he has done in the past could catch up to him, or is he just going to be Teflon Don, it's never going to stick, and he got away with it all?
1: My instinct is that he's Teflon Don, and he's going to get away with it all. Uh, Remember, um, he he won a plurality of um, educated white women in the United States in the election. And you would think that they would be uh, as highly attuned to this as almost anyone. Uh, you know, the, the the grab them by the pussy video would have been something that might have um, changed their viewpoint in, in greater numbers, and it didn't. And I think, in part, I think it's because people are sick of, of uh, the political process in Washington, and they're looking for somebody who can just go down there and disrupt it, even if it's someone as tainted as as Donald Trump. I mean, it's amazing that he ran a campaign calling Hillary Clinton crooked Hillary. And to the extent that she had any mud on her shoes, Donald Trump is caked in mud from the feet to the top of his head. He's been in business with career criminals and members of organized crime his whole business life. And none of that stuck to him. And yet there was this great public distrust of Hillary Clinton. Um, and I think, I think it's because we're in this peculiar historical moment when someone like him will be forgiven. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, taken to task permanently for going after John McCain's war record or questioning the Mexican heritage of, of, of judge Curiel. You know, he's, he's been a, he's been a race baiter and, in a and, and, and and uh, a hypocrite and, and is a sort of a, a, a poster boy for financial conflicts of interest, yet none of this has stuck to him. And I think that's because his base doesn't care. They just want change.
0: And do you think that, um, that Mueller will manage to find something that will stick to him?
1: I think, I think Donald Trump is deathly afraid of everything that Robert Mueller is doing. And that explains why he is constantly on social media, Twitter and elsewhere, calling it a witch hunt, questioning Mueller's motives, questioning the entire FBI, questioning the entire judicial process in the United States, because he knows that Mueller is on uh, two, I think, three big um, facets. Of, uh, of stuff that could compromise Trump, one of which I don't think he cares about, and two of which he does. I don't, I don't, I? Obviously, Mueller is looking at, at possible collusion with the Russians during the 2016 campaign. Uh, and um, I don't know how much that ultimately will come to brush by Trump, and I don't think he's concerned about it. I think he is also going to look at uh, Russian influence on Donald Trump himself and Donald Trump's own financial and business business history. And those two things really scare Trump and they should because he is a Pandora's box of of of, of problems financially and, and in his business life.
0: So just a last couple of questions and, and then we'll let you go. Um uh the first question is how you know I when when Trump was first elected, um I remember um, I couldn't, there was There literally was, it was such chaos within the White House that first week when he took in, took office that I, I think I tweeted at one point um, that I had read more news articles uh, in one week than I had in, a, in a, a year before that. I just literally couldn't get enough information about him, about the the, his, the people working for him, about what was going on in government and society and so on and so forth. And now I'm kind of at a point where I, you know, Somebody said to me at one point, they, they uh, said, you know, you let him take up too much real estate in your head for free, uh, speaking of Donald Trump. And I've tried to, you know, I try to limit the amount of stuff I read about him. And I, you know, I do read a lot and I write a lot and, um, and I'm going to, you know, stay informed. But I, I'm in a constant war with, with how much I, I let myself consume. How, how do you, someone who's been covering him since 1992, how do you decide how much to read and how much not to?
1: Well, because I'm continuing to write about him now as a columnist, I, I read tons of stuff every day and I don't limit it. Um, Occasionally, you know, I think I just need a mental release and, you know, that's what film and art and culture and literature are about, for me at least, music. Uh, but in the day-to-day of my journalism life, he's a big chunk of that. You know, I, I have to manage people who are covering a lot of other things as well here at Bloomberg. But um, And so I'm of necessity focused on those things as well. But um, I feel a responsibility as a member of the media to be as deeply informed as I possibly can about what he's doing. Um, I think your own experience of digesting tons of stuff after he got elected um, isn't unusual. And I don't think it's what uh, we all do this around these momentous and unexpected turns of the clock. I think people were that way after 9-11 and and reading up for the first time about Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, who maybe had not paid attention to any of that prior to that occurring. Uh, We've talked about the 08 financial crisis. I think people read up about you know mortgage frauds and mortgage securitizations and derivatives and all sorts of financial products they never paid attention to to a certain extent to familiarize themselves with the foundations of why that happened because people were shocked by it they weren't prepared for it and then it happened and it was so epic that they wondered why they didn't pay attention before and i think that trump is is a similar event it's so out of the realm of normal that somebody who is as um Incompetent and intellectually and financially unsophisticated as he is, to find his way into the White House is 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 stunning. I think for people, and I don't think his supporters were read up on who he is either. I, I think they bought. I, I don't think you can underestimate the extent to which The Apprentice really shaped his identity in the minds of his of his supporters, and. So coming back to what we do, I think that we owe it to readers to keep putting as much out there as we can that's built around the fact pattern about who he actually is and what he's actually doing. Uh, And then I think we're sort of hostages to fate in terms of whether or not that has an impact on our readers.
0: Uh, Do you think he'll run again in 2020 if he doesn't get taken down by the Mueller? You do? Wow.
1: I think he'll run think- in 2020. I think there's a good chance he could win. I think in an ideal world, Donald Trump would love to be president for life. I think he'd love to be like Henry VIII and just grow old and corpulent, uh, while in the white house. But fortunately we have term limits in the United States.
0: So let's just pretend that he doesn't win in 2020, or maybe he does win in 2020. Um, uh, how, this is, and this is my last question for you. So you can, you can, you can be as, as long winded as you want here. But how, um, how do you think history remembers Donald Trump? You know, when my kids are older and they have kids and, you know, they're talking about life after the nuclear fallout from the North Korean War, just kidding. Um, uh, no, they, and, you know, they're sitting there and talking about this moment in history from someone who didn't live through it. How do you think that Trump is remembered?
1: I think he'll be remembered as an epic grifter. And in that context, there have been people like him on the American scene before, whether it was snake oil salesmen out west, whether it was Father Coughlin using radio in in the 1930s uh, to broadcast anti-Semitism or Joe McCarthy using a new medium TV in the 1950s uh, to launch communist witch hunts, or Donald Trump using social media now. He, he's as much of a, a product of that technology as he is an embodiment of this moment historically. Uh, and I think it's a question of whether or not working class and middle class voters who supported him uh, by his con up until the very moment that he takes advantage of them. Uh, and certainly, I don't think they'll stay with him once they recognize that he has taken advantage of him. You saw some of that around health care repeal. He's promised to deliver millions of new jobs. He's going to be hard pressed to do that. And I think hopefully those voters will hold him accountable uh, around those things. But I think historically, looking back, he'll be seen as one of the great grifters of U.S. history.
0: Well, I hope you're right, because if there's, if there's any anything good that could come of all this, is that he is not remembered the way he wants to be. I don't think he s- will be,
1: because he'd want his face on Mount Rushmore, Nick. <laughs>
0: um, it may still happen. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, people can uh, read, read all your uh, writings on uh, Bloomberg View and uh, follow you on Twitter at Tim O'Brien, correct?
1: Correct. At Tim O'Brien.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: It was great being with you, Nick. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks. Thanks to my guest today, Tim O'Brien. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the High with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work and my editors at Vanity Fair. I'll see you all next week.